Welcome to Martha Runs the World, a podcast with a new take on running, fitness, and all things health-oriented. I'm Martha Hughes, your host, and each week I present a new topic that is of interest to all runners. Well, hi there. Welcome to episode 129 of Martha Runs the World. Thank you for joining me. I have a great show for you, as always, I hope. I work really hard to bring you a different topic every week. This week, my guest is Matt Schifferly. He's a fitness coach, an author, a blogger, a vlogger. He knows a lot about fitness, and he's going to maybe break down some beliefs that you might have in fitness as far as fitness for running. He's probably going to uh, change, maybe change the way you think when it comes to fitness for running. He certainly spent a lot of time thinking about it and a lot of time practicing it and honing his craft. So he'll be talking about that briefly. And just before that, I would love it if you would think about becoming a Patreon patron. You can become a patron at $2, $5, or $10 a month. Every patron gets extra episodes only available to them. And if you sign up at $5 or $10, you also get a special merchandise just for the patrons. Become a, a Patreon patron, and you can do that going to MarthaRunsTheWorld.com. And I thank you if you decide to do so. All right, here is... Matt Schifferly. Will you welcome my guest today, Matt Schifferly? He's fitness coach, and he's going to talk to us about being stronger for running. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, Martha. Great to be on here. Thank you very much. Sure. No problem. Thank you for joining me. I first wanted to ask you, what are micro workouts? Well, the, the simplest definition of it is that it's a, a short workout. <laughs> People oftentimes like to put more of a fine point on the definition of how long it is or exactly what kind of exercises it entails. But I always use that short definition because it's one of those things, you know, it when you see it, when you see or experience a workout that when you say, Oh, that's a lot shorter. or That's a lot quicker than what I normally do. That in my mind is a micro workout. So something like in the endurance world, that can be something that seems relatively short to what you're used to doing. Like if you're used to going for like a two hour run or a 10 mile run most of the time, and you say, well, I'm going to just do a few sprints around a track. In many people's mind, that might be still a full workout. But for you, that would be a relative micro workout because it's so much shorter than what you normally do. So what is the minimum time for benefits in a micro workout? Oh, it could be anywhere from just a number of seconds. I give uh, people little exercises and things to do to stave off imbalances or help release tension throughout the body, improving alignment things. And I'll give them a simple exercise, oftentimes something that's an isometric that doesn't require any equipment. And it will literally take five to 10 seconds to go through that. And that I would say, there's your micro workout. That's your hip workout right there. Do that two or three times a day or a week or as you can. So it can be literally as short as just something you would do uh, for a few seconds. That is amazing. So, okay, what is or what are isometrics? So isometrics are technically any type of exercise where you're just not moving. 
So if you're just standing still, technically that would be an isometric. Or if you are, for example, holding a stretch, that's an isometric. But uh, it can be a wide range of different types of isometrics. The ones that I refer to a lot in many of my videos and stuff are often commonly called overcoming isometrics, where instead of just holding a position against gravity, like if you just held your arms straight out to your side, uh, an overcoming isometric would be where you're applying force against something that you can't possibly move against. So instead of holding your arm out to the side where you're using just enough force to hold it there against the pull of gravity, you would stand, for example, in a doorway and push your hands out to your sides against the doorway. And that would be an overcoming isometric because you can't overcome whatever you're pushing against. And that way you can supply a lot of tension into the muscle, but it's also a very good educational tool on how to use those muscles much better. Oh, that's terrific. So how can we as runners benefit from this? So for endurance athletes, we are susceptible to a number of challenges, especially the more advanced we get, where we are creating uh, movement patterns that are imbalanced, or we're compensating, some areas are weak, some areas are tight. Sometimes we just may lose a connection with being able to engage certain muscles very well. For example, with runners, a lot of times that's in the hips. Uh, Sometimes it's the hamstrings, particularly for endurance runners. Sprinters, I know, can use the hamstrings quite a lot, but endurance runners, sometimes when we're going for long distances, we start to fatigue As we get more tired, technique breaks down a little bit and we start to establish these patterns of how we use our muscles that are kind of eroding over time. It's kind of like creating bad habits. So these isometrics, what they do is they allow us to be very efficient in reprogramming how we can use those muscles to get them back in alignment that helps to stave off injury, improve performance, endurance. Uh, less stress around the joints, and it makes the runs a heck of a lot more enjoyable as well. When did you come about to this way of working out? Well, it's been a long time coming. As an endurance athlete myself, uh, most of my background was in bike racing. I was a cyclist and a mountain bike racer back in college, and uh, running was always kind of the the secondary thing that I would do. I do a lot of trail running and stuff when I was growing up in Vermont, but. Uh, over years of doing this, I started to notice, oh man, my back is starting to hurt and I've got this issue in my right knee that just won't seem to go away. And over several years of seeing therapists and chiropractors and athletic trainers, over time, I started to notice the pattern was always centered around how I was using my muscles. Every every person in the disciplines, no matter what the problem was and no matter what their approach was, it always boiled down to, hey, you don't have good connection and activation in this hip muscle or this hamstring is just not being fired when you walk up a flight of stairs or something. There was always that exact same thing of you're not engaging this. So it, it took me a while to finally you know, like get it like, Oh, it's about muscle activation. Okay. But then I started to think, okay, so how do I do this? Cause muscle activation is a very, very difficult thing to train because it's something that's usually uh, invisible uh, unless it's grossly uh, out of balance. For the most part, it's not something you're going to see. 
it's something you can only really feel. It's kind of like if you tasted uh, something that you were cooking in the in the kitchen, like, well, that sauce looks the same way as it did an hour ago, but it tastes totally different. That's the challenge with uh, neuromuscular activation is it feels different, but it's hard to say, okay, just put your arm, arm here or step this way and other things that are easier to manage. So over the years, I was like, okay, and I was making a little headway of how can I train my muscles to work better? And a couple of years ago, I came across this idea of isometrics and I started to give it a try. And it was a night and day difference. I had made more progress in activating some of my stubborn muscles within a few days than I had in the previous couple of years. And so as soon as I came across and started to experience those isometrics, it's like all the pieces fit together. It's like, oh, this is it. This is the way I can really make a lot happen in a very efficient way, very, very quickly. That has a lot of carryover towards the endurance uh, sports that I do. So what exactly, let's break this down a little bit. So what exactly Mm -hmm. is muscle activation? Yep. So one of the biggest myths in fitness is that our muscles are being worked because of the exercises that we do. Like you grab a a weight in your hand and you pull it upwards towards your face and it's like, oh, my bicep is working because I've got this weight in my hand and stuff. But it's actually putting the cart before the horse because if you look in a kinesiology or exercise science textbook, the thing that actually tells your muscles to contract, how hard to contract, how long to contract is actually your mind. It's your brain. Your muscles are hardwired into your nervous system. So the analogy I always use is think of your muscles kind of like the wheels on a car or an automobile. And when we get in a car, it's like, okay, yes, the wheels are moving, they're spinning, that's making the car go forward. But what's driving the wheels? Well, it's the engine, of course. Your engine creates the power and it goes through the transmission to the wheels. Well, that's exactly how your neuromuscular system works is your engine is your brain. Your brain creates a signal and then it goes through the transmission, aka your nervous system, and then it goes out to your peripheral nervous system and tells your muscle fibers, the actual fibers, okay, you folks over there in the legs, you contract to this degree in this sequence, and that's how we actually create the movements and the performance that we want. So when we get down to the fundamental reason why our muscles work and how they're trained and what makes them work better, it's not necessarily the exercises that we do or the weight that we use or our running program. It's what is our brain telling our muscles that needs to happen? And the workouts and the exercises and the weights and stuff, that's like the road that we're traveling. You know, the, the pavement under your car doesn't make your car go forward, but it gives you the path to follow. And you're saying, okay, follow or turn the engine on and create power to the wheels in order to go along this path. So it's not like those things aren't important, but they're not what's actually driving the muscle itself and telling it how it needs to perform. It's your actual brain that's doing that. So when we recognize that and we turn our training more into a a conditioning system of getting our brain to use our muscles better, then it greatly enhances the effectiveness of everything we do in our workouts. And it also makes it a lot more fun and enjoyable and a lot safer as well. Wow. See, I never knew that. That's the great connection between the brain and the body then. We'll be right back. 
Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's a solid connection too. It's not kind of like oh the mind and is and connected with the body. It's literally like the nerves are connected through your system. And we have the anatomy charts of your brain, then your central nervous system down your spinal column through this nerve to this set of muscle fibers. It is an actual physiological connection. It's nothing like woo-woo, pseudoscience-y, mm-hmm. bro-science-y kind mm-hmm. of thing. It is an actual connection that we know for fact can be conditioned and it can become strength stronger or it can become weaker. The old, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of principle. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Definitely. You wrote a blog post recently about three subliminal beliefs that make fitness harder than it should be. So mm-hmm. what are, what are, and that was a really good blog, but what are those beliefs? So let me see if I can remember exactly <laughs> what those were. Um, yeah, so a lot of those those beliefs, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, were, were based on the idea of, uh, the first is that uh, you basically need to struggle for success. Uh, and this is the beliefs that I fell for back in the day, especially when I was a racer. Basically, I thought, if I'm just, beating myself to a pulp, then that's going to be making me stronger. And, and I would do things just because they were harder. I would say, okay, I'm going to go out for a run and I'm going to purposely go at the hottest time of the day. And I'm going to wear uh, clothes that are going to make me really sweat and hot and uncomfortable. And I'm not going to drink any water. And basically it's like, how can I just make this miserable for myself kind of thing? And there's a lot of this idea in our fitness culture of stress is what changes the body. If, if you're stressing yourself out, if you're pushing yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, then that's going to have a bigger payoff. But in many cases, the opposite is the outcome where the more stressful we make things, the greater we're actually holding ourselves back. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that stress and challenge isn't going to be part of the deal. Of course, it is. Anybody, you know, the, the old adage of easy run is an oxymoron. Of course, there's a challenge with running. There's going to be physical and mental and sometimes emotional discomfort that comes with it. That's part of what we do. But it's not the primary driver that's making us change because we can create stress upon our body every single time we exercise, but there's no guarantee that that stress and years of stress are going to produce the result that we want. There's that old adage of hard work always pays off. Uh, But if we really objectively look at the outcomes that people experience in fitness and other areas of life like business and stuff, hard work very often does not pay off. Uh, It very often, in fact, leads to mediocrity and failure. Uh, Instead, we want to recognize that hard work and the struggles that we encounter and stuff, especially as athletes, these are like an investment. 
You know, we invest our time, we invest our effort, we invest our energy, and we want to get a payout for it. But like any investment in life, like investing in uh, you know, financial investments, there's no guarantee of a return on that investment. You can make investment and have it go completely flat or even lose out overall. Like, oh, I did this workout for six months and now I've got knee pain kind of thing. So that's the first myth is that, no, the struggle doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. So stop embracing it. Stop embracing this idea of you've got to beat yourself down and suffer for results because they're not giving out participation trophies in real life. You don't get awards for showing up and putting in effort. You get rewards for winning. You get results by getting productive. And so the counterside of that is instead of focusing on how hard can I push myself, it's how can I make what I'm doing more productive? So coming back to training the neuromuscular system, when we go out for a run, it shouldn't be, okay, I'm going to just push myself and sweat a lot. And how do I just make myself really, really tired? Because that means I'm burning calories and so on. Instead, we want to take more of an approach of how do we run better? How can we run smoother? How do I use my hip muscles so that at the end of the run, my legs still feel really good and I don't feel like it's a struggle to climb a flight of stairs the next day? How do I just do things better rather than just harder? Because that's the mindset flip that allows us to focus on what's actually most important that actually gets you the results. And then the struggle and the effort and the hard work can become more of, well, this is how much it takes to get to that result. I'm going to put that in, but I'm not purposely trying to expose myself to more of that struggle than is necessary because that's just being wasteful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but it, it's, there's a fine line, especially when you get into alt, like uh, ultra running, uh, mm. you, you have to struggle because a lot of the, the runs like, like a hundred milers in the desert, you're going to have to get used to that heat, but yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to do it so much that you're going to hurt yourself or suffer with mm -hmm. dehydration or that kind of thing. There's, there's definitely a fine line and, and runners do push that line and they push it too hard. And then they wind, wind up hurting themselves when they're, mm -hmm. when they're going out for the race. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like there's no such thing as a hundred mile run. That's going to be easy. <laughs> there's just no way around that sort of thing. No. Um, like out here in Colorado, we have a, a, a ride that I do on my road bike. It's uh, called the uh, lookout mountain. It's not a terribly big ride. Most people can do it in around 30 minutes or so, but it's kind of like the benchmark that a lot of people around here have because it's got a very definitive start and stop point. So a lot of people will say, what's your lookout time? What, how fast do you go up Lookout Mountain? And it's the kind of mountain where there's no easy way up it. <laughs> you can take it easy. You can take it hard and try and go for a PR, but no matter what, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be very hard. But what the mindset allows us to do is, even though things are challenging, to still look for ways to improve efficiency and minimize the unnecessary effort. So if, for example, on that 100 miles, like the people who are the most effective at that, they're not going out there saying, I'm going to wear shoes that are going to give me blisters, and I'm not going to dress for the weather, and I'm not going to have food at these food stations. We're still focusing on what's the most comfortable I can keep myself while doing this? What kind of food can I still consume, get energy from, and not 
feel like it makes me nauseous after 80 miles of running because I still have 20 more miles to go, right? We're always still looking for how do I still make this easier on myself rather than harder? Because the amount of effort it takes to run either a 5K or 100 miles is always the same. It's always 100%. (laughs) As I used to say, mountain bike races, like the race you do is always 100% effort. When we find these little ways of, hey, these sunglasses don't fog up, so that way I've got clear vision. These are better sunglasses. Or uh, if I eat this type of food, then it's easier on my digestive system and I don't feel queasy afterwards. Finding these sorts of things doesn't make the run any easier. It makes it more productive because it means that some of the effort that we would have to put into dealing with the struggle of feeling nauseous or dealing with the fog on our sunglasses or something, even those little things means that's effort that has to come from the actual productivity of being successful in the actual activity. So it's costing us rather than helping us. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So how many times for endurance athletes, how many think, how many times a week do you think they should be strength training? You know, keep it to a a minimal, like around twice or so. Mm -hmm. The challenge with endurance athletes is we're already spending a lot of time and a lot of energy in our respective sports. So oftentimes when guys like me say, oh, we should be strength training. I met with a lot of resistance from endurance athletes because they're kind of thinking, I'm all, you want me to do more? You want me to spend more money on a gym membership or home equipment? You want me to spend more time learning all this stuff? You want me to, I don't want another sport. I've already got a sport that's taking up all of my resources. I don't have much left. And that's as a result, many endurance athletes are the least conditioned athletes in the world because they're doing their sport, but they're not doing anything supplemental to stave off injury and keep their body in balance and alignment. It's a big mistake that I used to make back in the day. So that's why I always say like, you're not doing this to be a bodybuilder. You're not doing this to set uh, like powerlifting PRs or anything. You're doing it just enough to make sure that the strength and condition of your neuromuscular system isn't the weak link that's holding you back on your performance. And it does not take much to make that happen. It really doesn't. A lot of people will look at what I recommend and they're like, that's it. That doesn't feel like it's going to do very much. And they're absolutely right. It's not going to do very much, but it's going to do enough. And that's all we need as endurance athletes. We need it just enough to make sure our legs stay strong, our joints stay healthy. We have plenty of mobility and we no longer are our own worst enemy or riding our brakes, so to speak, when it comes to getting the most performance in our running or cycling or cross-country skiing or whatever. Can you give us an example of a couple exercises that the endurance runners should be doing? Sure, sure. So the the most simple exercises, the, the big three for endurance athletes, especially for leg-dominant endurance athletes like runners and cyclists, is first and foremost, you have lunges. Uh, you have planks, and then you have hip bridges. And the reason why I give those three exercises uh, is fundamentally lunges are the most basic movement pattern for runners and cyclists and stuff because they're basically, uh, uh, not an exaggeration, but they're a big 
big version of what we already do. And when we run, when we hike and stuff, we're stepping. Lunges are nothing more than a big exaggerated step. So everything you do in a lunge is exactly what you need to do when you're running. We're just doing more of it. You have more mobility, more stability, and more strength. So therefore, if you get proficient in lunges, you've got all of the neuromuscular qualities you need to excel as a runner because you've already developed more of it than necessary during that conditioning phase. And it's just one exercise, it's the lunges. And you can do lunges many, many different ways. You everywhere from very easy uh, early season beginner to super advanced athlete. There's lunge variations for you. There's reverse lunges, forward lunges, jumping lunges, lunges with weight, lunges uphill. Uh, you can change the width. You can change the length. You can change the depth. There's a lot of variation. Basically, what I'm saying. So, I know a lot of times when I say a a, a name of an exercise like oh lunges, a lot of people listening right now would be like nope, can't do that or yeah, I already do that or whatever. And what I want to do is really emphasize this idea of that's a broad range of what we can be talking about when I say lunges. Uh, I can have like 15 people in the room doing seemingly completely different exercises, but they're all different lunge exercises. True. So uh, lunges, that's that's your bread and butter. If you're going to do one thing, that's it. Like if you're literally like, I've got no time or energy at all, just that's it. Just the lunges, bottom line. If you have time for a second exercise, it's the hip bridge. Uh, hip bridges are basically where you're either laying on the ground or your hands are behind you, like you're sitting on the floor watching TV as a kid and your hands are holding you up, right? Mm -hmm. And you dig your heels into the floor and lift your hips up using your glutes and hamstrings. Mm -hmm. And so this is obviously what we're doing is we're addressing our posterior, as I call it, the extension chain where we are stretching everything tight, we are strengthening everything weak, we are waking up everything that is sleepy. So many of the challenges and imbalances that we endurance athletes experience from being on the bike or being on uh, the, the trails so long and many repetition stuff, we get a lot of these issues and problems. And they're almost all completely addressed with this one exercise. So the hip bridge variant, and again, lots of different variations to it. Everything from crazy easy to ridiculously hard and advanced and everywhere in between can be addressed. So that's the second exercise, hip bridges. And then the third one is the hollow body plank variations. Yeah. I think we're all familiar uh, with the and plank. And this is basically just getting, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and this is addressing the front of the body, of course. We got yes. the backside, now we got the front side. And I, if you have a set of these, I much prefer doing this on like gymnastics rings or a TRX uh, mm -hmm. kind of suspension set, set up. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is because it makes it much more adjustable. So again, we can go from crazy easy to stupid hard and everywhere in between. Um, it allows us to improve the stability in our shoulders and our hips. But more importantly, it also allows us to control the intensity so that we can get a lot out of it in a very short period of time. Uh, usually when I give people plank variations, I'm like, no more than 20 seconds. If you could do it for more than 20 seconds, it's too easy. So I've never been one of these folks who's like, okay, let's see how long you can hold a plank for. Can you hold it for two minutes and stuff? It's like, nope. Okay, you did it for 40 seconds. Okay, great. That means you took it too easy. We need to make it harder. Because as endurance athletes, we need the intensity. It's a little counterproductive or counterintuitive but when it comes to strength training, we want intensity. 
we don't want endurance in our strength training. We already have endurance in our sport. So if we were to say, okay, I'm going to do a thousand lunges every day and I'm going to hold a plank for 10 minutes and I'm going to do 500 hip bridges. Well, fundamentally then we're not necessarily training our neuromuscular system that much more differently than what we would be doing out on the trail or on the path or on the bike. It would be different enough that we would still get some benefit, but it wouldn't be different enough to be very productive. That makes so, so we, much, I, I, excuse me for interrupting you, yep. but that makes so much sense to me. I, and, and, and all the time, all, and all the time it takes to do those thousands of exercises. Plus mm-hmm. does, doesn't your, it, it, it drives me crazy when I hear people doing that. Doesn't, doesn't your body just get so used to it? You don't advance at all. It doesn't, it doesn't help anything by doing a thousand, you know, a hundred, you know, squats <laughs> or a hundred sit-ups. It's like your body just doesn't, it doesn't get any help from that at all. Right. There is some redundancy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's at a certain point, your body's like, this is just more of the same. When we're training and conditioning, we want to make sure we're, again, we're not stressing the body. That's not the goal. The goal is not to create fatigue. The goal is not to uh, just wear ourselves out. The goal is to create a stimulus. Uh, That's the the whole point of a micro workout. When I tell people about micro workouts, I say the goal is not to do a workout that's very quick and short. The goal is you get very focused on what the type of stimulus you're trying to create is. Because once you understand what that stimulus specifically is, and you focus on that, you realize it doesn't take a lot of work to make that happen. Um, Like I was saying with, with isometrics, uh, uh, isometric I give for a lot of endurance athletes is um, uh, a lateral uh, hip exercise. You stand next to a wall and you pick up one leg that's closest to the wall, kind of like a dog peeing on a fire hydrant kind of pose. And you push the side of that foot into the wall. And that works all of the muscles in your side of your hip and it improves the stability of your standing leg hip and all these sorts of things. And when it comes to, I need strong hips, great, do that. And it works the hip. It works it great. It goes with a very high intensity. It takes you 10 seconds. We're done. That's it. You're good. <laughs> like, cause we know that stimulus is we've just got to work that hip muscle and get it to fire and work at a very high degree of intensity. Good. That's all we need to do great let's push the foot against the wall and go about five seconds there okay five seconds the other side oh what the hell one more time we get it a couple more times good you're done that's it like i'm done I'm like yeah because we know what we needed to do we hit the nail right on the head a few times job is done move on with your life kind of thing we don't need 20 million different exercises so yeah when we have the intensity that's the best way to maximize our time for conditioning or nervous system and our muscular neuromuscular system. So that way, when we go on to our run or our ride, that every step and every pedal stroke that we're taking is so much more efficient because it's easy by comparison. You have a lot better mobility, a lot better stability, and a lot more strength and power. And as a result, it's almost like you've got these Terminator legs that can just handle anything and they're no longer a weakness, but an asset for your sport. Awesome. That is really awesome. Tell us about the Red Delta Project. What is that? Mm-hmm. So that's some the name I came up with years and years ago, <laughs> back in you know the, the late 90s, of course, when everyone was like, oh, if you're going to get a domain name, you need to 
you know, register it quick because back then everybody was so concerned about what's your domain name and can you spell it? And there were, you know, articles out there like, what's the perfect domain name? So I needed something that mm-hmm. wasn't taken. Um, but no, the, it was an approach to fitness that I started to create where basically it's like I was saying of how do we get focused on just what's most important mm-hmm. in fitness? Right. A lot of our approaches out there, if you ask people for advice on how do I eat and how do I exercise and uh, what kind of things should I do, a lot of our fitness culture is based on what methods you should be following, mm-hmm. which isn't bad advice, but it's a little bit like someone saying, okay, so how do I get to the airport? And they tell you what kind of car you should drive. It's like, okay, well, that's great. But if someone's like, how do I get to Denver airport and i say well you need a black pickup truck that doesn't really help you but when now in in our fitness culture people like i want to lose weight i want to build muscle i want to be a faster runner they say oh you need to follow this program you need this kind of diet you need these kinds of shoes and you need all these it's like yeah but that's not actually what gets hit to the destination you want it's just the vehicle so red delta project was created as a way to focus on the fundamental principles of fitness that are responsible for your results, that are responsible for what you want. Because the more you can understand and focus on those things, the more not only do you have a direct line between where you are now and where you want to be, but it also gives you the freedom to use whatever the heck method you actually want to use or can use. So back to the analogy of how do I get to the airport? I give you directions for, oh, you need to go up, you know, I-70 and take a ride on Penna Boulevard and stuff. You're like, great. Now I can use whatever car I have. I can take an Uber or a taxi, or I can call up my friend and see if they can take me to the airport so I don't have to pay for parking. You can figure out the method that works best for you based on your resources and your circumstances and your uh, abilities, because we all know that. But if I give you advice on how you should be exercising and specifically what you should be eating and stuff. That's just me blindly guessing on what your circumstances are. So for example, like earlier when we were like, well, how many times should we work out? I don't know, (laughs) to be honest with you, like twice a week is a good general number for endurance athletes, but some things, um, depending on what you're trying to do, you should be doing something every day. day, You know, that that hip exercise, if you came to me and I realized, okay, your hips are totally out to lunch. You have very poor hip activation that, okay, now our circumstances are different. Now what we need to do is different. Now our ability to do things is changed. So I'm not going to recommend twice a week because that's not going to be even close to enough. Uh, It's like learning how to play the piano with just one lesson a week versus practicing every day. Mm -hmm. So now, because I know the circumstances are different, I know what I'm trying to do. I can say, okay, this is what we actually need to be doing here's how we can do it. And you're like, well, I don't like to do this every day. I'm like, okay, based on that information, now I'm going to change again and say, all right, instead of every day, how about every other day? But I give you this little thing to do before each run. Does that work? Oh yeah, I could do that. Okay, great. Now we can roll with this, but it gives us those, uh, uh, that freedom so that we can achieve better alignment. So there's less stress on the mind, body, and lifestyle to be much more productive. That makes a lot of sense everything that you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I know that uh, my listeners will get a lot out of this and we'll put a link on the website for all your information. Cause your website is just a plethora of information. <laughs> it's like this rabbit hole going through all your books and everything. 
Yeah. And thank you so much for joining me today, because this is really, really useful. I could spend hours with you talking about this stuff, really. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's a yeah. pleasure talking to you, Martha. Thank you yeah, very much yeah, for having me on. Yeah, very much. And thank you. I totally appreciate you being on the show. And um, we will talk soon. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you very much, All right. Martha. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much, Matt. There's a lot of information packed in there and a lot of great, great help to make our running better. And if we can be better runners with less work, I'm all for it, personally. (laughs) I really am. If we can do it and we don't have to work quite as hard, excellent. (laughs) All right. Now, my weekly feature, Tales of the Trail. This week's Tales of the Trail, I am giving my book review of Corey Reese's latest work, Stronger Than the Dark. It was just released in June last month. I'm first going to tell you, I really recommend this book, and it's a great book for everyone to read. It's different than his past two books, which I have also read, Nowhere Near First and Into the Furnace, Nowhere Near First was more autobiographical. It was a lot more humorous. Into the Furnace was also a little bit more humorous. It was more about Bad Water 135. Stronger Than the Dark is a lot more serious. There's still some of his humor in there, but it's a lot more inward. It's a lot more serious. It's looking at how some of his past events in his life affected him and how he had developed depression. And I'm not going to give away too much of the book. I'm just, that's basically the, the gist of the book. And I'm not going to say what events caused that. You'll have to read that for yourself. But it's how he handles the depression and how he has to take further steps to, to handle that depression. There's a little bit of a controversy. Okay, it's a pretty big controversy. By An article came out from Ultra Running Magazine saying that uh, running isn't therapy. Well, okay, running, let me just put it this way. What works for some people will may work, not work for others. And if, yeah, if you had a bad day at work, if you're feeling a little sad and, oh, gee, maybe you had a fight with your husband and, oh, golly, gee, the, the bills are are piling up and, oh, you know, you, you just, you need some time out and, need to get some space and feel feel better about things. Run is a run is great. Yeah, excellent. But if you have really bad depression, and I mean clinical depression, or if things are really looking dire for you, a run is not going to solve that. I it just isn't. <laughs> you may feel a little better, maybe. It's 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 not going to cure all of your problems. Yeah, you may feel a little better afterwards and it may help. It may be part of the solution, but it's not a, an end-all, fix-all. It may make things worse. If you have part of your problems are eating disorders, for example, it may make your eating disorders worse. Ask people who have had them. They used running as a means to feign off hunger and get thinner. That's just an example. 
if you actually read the article and understood it, they're just saying that please don't substitute running for counseling, running for therapy. If you really need therapy, you should really get therapy. And I don't think anyone should dismiss that, especially if you haven't had the real depression that that needs therapy. I don't think you should dismiss it or count it off because that's very important. And if you need to get that, then you should seek that out. And sometimes therapy isn't enough. Sometimes you need antidepressants to help you. Many people need that. And that keeps them going and that keeps them above the the darkness. And a lot of this is in Corey's book. And that's a very important part of his book. Yeah, running is excellent for your health and running can contribute to a healthy lifestyle mentally and otherwise, but it's not a end-all cure-all for depression or any other mental health problems that we may have. So please don't think of it that way. <laughs> really don't. Because if you do, maybe you've never had real depression or maybe you've never had those kind of problems so you don't understand it. So that's why you think it is that way. Okay. I under I get that. All right. Okay. That's really all I have in Tales of the Trails. There really wasn't any news to bring up this week. Um, let's see. Okay. That's it. And if you do have problems and you really are struggling, uh, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, and they are available 24-7, okay? All right. Life is wonderful. Life is too short to give it up, so there is help for you, all right? And that is this week's Tales of the Trail. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much to Matt. Thank you, everyone, for being a part of Martha Runs the World and for supporting my little podcast here. I truly appreciate you. If you want Matt's links and all of the links, I'll give a link to where you can purchase Corey's book on Amazon. It's MarthaRunsTheWorld.com. If you want to comment, send me a comment. If you want to have a question for me if you want to send me a suggestion for a future show topic you can email me at martha runs the world at gmail.com and until next week let's tie up our shoelaces and go for a run